Welcome everyone to this month's BJJ podcast. I am Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. So far this year, our podcasts have accompanied an original paper or review article we've published in the journal. And we've also produced two podcast series on the COVID-19 pandemic, which we do hope you have found helpful in these strange and difficult times. As some of you may know, as we did last year, for the months of June and July, we are doing a podcast to accompany our supplements from the American Hip and Knee Society closed meetings. So over the next 15 to 20 minutes or so, we'll be discussing the June supplement of the BJJ that includes 27 papers from the American Knee Society closed meeting in 2019. We hope to give you a brief overview of the society and who the members are, as well as discussing how this collaboration has developed, along with how we hope this is benefiting you as our listeners and readers. We also aim to, aim to give you a behind-the-scenes insight on how the studies within the supplement have been reviewed and chosen, as well as some brief discussion on a few select papers. So with that in mind, firstly, I have the pleasure of being joined by our Editor-in-Chief here at the BJJ, Professor Faris Adab. Welcome, Prof, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be with you. Prof and I are delighted to be joined again this year by the returning guest editor for the Knee Supplement, Dr. Brian Springer, who is the Fellowship Director at Ortho Carolina Hip and Knee Center in the U.S. Welcome, Dr. Springer, and thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Glad, great to be here. Thank you, Brian. So if, if we could start off, Brian, just for our listeners who are not aware, could you give us a brief overview of the Knee Society, how it sort of came about and what, what, what role it plays? Sure, I'd be happy to. And it's, you know, it's quite interesting to go back and, and look at the history of the Nice Society. It, it started really about 37 years ago. Uh, 1983 was the first meeting, and I kind of envisioned it as being a, you know, a meeting with thought leaders in knee surgery at that time, somewhere around eight or 10 of them probably sitting in a room having pretty massive arguments about, <laughs> about, uh, about knee surgery at the time because there was you know, so many things that, that needed to be ironed out. And I guess you mm. could still argue that. Mm. Uh, today, but it was really it was really Dr. Ronowitz from New York's vision to start this mm. uh, to start this society in 1983, and he really put together I think what would be considered some of the giants in in knee replacement surgery. And you know they they really understood the the importance of advancing knee society from uh, advancing knee surgery from the state that it was in uh, back in 1983, and that's really kind of been the the mission of the knee society really ever since if you look at their at, at matter of fact if you look at their mission statement it is advancing care of patients with knee disorders through leadership in education and in research and I think it really is that education and research that's at the forefront of the knee society and I think what you see when you when you look at the supplement and when you look at the at the meetings that have uh, that have been put on year after year by the knee society absolutely Brian and do, do you think that do you have a feel for how that's evolved over time as as the the as it as, as it's grown? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's still, uh, you know, considered a, an, an exclusive club. You know, my, myself and Professor Dad are very honored to be uh, a part of it. Mm. Uh, but, I, but, you know, understanding that as, as the care of uh, knee replacement patients has come to the forefront and the, and, the, and the technology is advancing so rapidly, you know, it's expanded from the small group to a national to really now an, an international society. Yeah. Uh, really for, you know, collaboration of ideas and sharing of research. And, you know, it, it really from us on our academic calendar, it's really where I think all the cutting edge research for the year is first presented. Yeah, no, I definitely get, I've, I've got that feeling, you know, from last year's supplements and looking at the supplements this year, it's sort of setting, setting the marker in the sand for the, for the coming years ahead of, of what the research Absolutely. is going to be about. Would you agree with that? Uh, no, no question. I think it, it sets the bar very high for the rest of the academic meetings for the year. 
absolutely absolutely so prof if i if i could come to you uh we've obviously just discussed this before but i think it's important could you give us our listeners some insight into how our collaboration first came out with the nice charity and how it's sort of developing over the over the years and, and what the benefits have been to us at the journal absolutely i, I think you know it's been a great partnership so far this is the second year in a three-year cycle that's been agreed between the hip and the knee society and the bone and joint journal it's something that may or may not continue, but I think we certainly hope it will. Mm-hmm. It's uh, allowed us to uh, give our readers exposure to the real thought leaders in North America and worldwide. And you've got to remember that the Knee Society is a group of very select North American surgeons, but within that, there is a 10% international membership, and there are some very eminent non North American knee surgeons who contribute. So the thinking, the dialogue, the research, the collaborative uh, feeling that you get within those meetings and as, that you can see within the outputs in the supplement is absolutely unique and tremendous. And it's been fantastic to have it in the Bone, bone and Joint Journal. Uh, at multiple levels, it, uh, it enriches uh, our lives as people who think about knee surgery to see this material, but it's also great for the Knee Society to have this uh, delivered in the manner that only I think the Bone and Joint Journal can by taking these papers, putting them through a very robust review process, and then rewriting them in this you know, unique format, and then delivering them to the rest of the world. So I think this is a platform that is hopefully ideal for the Nice Society to disseminate this great work worldwide. Definitely, definitely, Prof. And you mentioned there the, the sort of peer review process. I, again, I know we've mentioned it in the past, but I think it's important for the readers. It, it's quite a robust review process these, these papers go through to get in the supplement, isn't it? It is indeed. No, no, this is uh, something that's been thought through in great detail, and I think that's worked very well. And uh, I'm afraid we've had Dr. Springer working extremely hard for the last few months. There, there are two types of papers in, in the supplement. There are uh, the majority, which are those papers that uh, were presented at the Nice Society meeting. Out of those many papers presented there, uh, a select uh, number will submit to the journal, and then they will go through a blinded peer review process with peer reviewers that are partly North American and partly non-North American, so that there is a kind of worldwide review of this thinking and of, of these manuscripts. Hmm. And those that come get over the bar will be selected. So those in the supplement are that subset that really have been through a very rigorous uh, process. Yeah. Beyond that, there are the, the, the sort of real uh, cherry, which are the three prize papers. Now, that is a highly competitive process. That's open beyond the members of the Nice Society. So that's open to uh, all of us who aspire to do groundbreaking research in knee surgery. They're submitted at the beginning of December, and they are, in fact, reviewed and selected by the uh, academic board of the uh, Nice Society. And once these are selected, so that selection process is outside the journal, but then they come to the journal and go through a peer review process at the journal. We try and test those papers and we try and optimize them and I think those those papers are a real highlight every year I think this year in particular because the American Academy meeting where they're normally presented did not take place this is really their first big outing for some of them and I think it's it's great to see them in the bone and joint journal Absolutely. And as you say, it's, it's a, multiple levels of, of review and uh, refining of these papers to, 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 to attain that high level that is clearly there when you look at the supplement. And uh, if we sort of move on, on to that, and I'll come back to you, Brian, if, if we're also going to discuss um, briefly the three prize papers, which Prof has just mentioned. But if I could just ask you, do you have a feel from 
you know the core or topical themes that have come out in the supplement and and, and from the meeting yeah i think um you know this kind of being the beginning when these are presented kind of the beginning of the ac academic year really kind of sets the stage for the rest of the year and it's always interesting to you know to see some of the themes that emerge from uh from this meeting as we you know kind of consider it the the leading edge of the of the research year uh if you will and 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 you know we have kind of the 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 categories that you would typically think of right there's there's lots of papers about infection, which continues yeah. to be a huge issue for us, not only managing complications, but how we could potentially deal with them, you know, better. So you'll see some papers about local antibiotic delivery, yeah. uh, things along those lines, which I think are, you know, really important as we help to kind of continue to manage this, hmm. this burden. Um, and, and similarly, we talk about, you know, a lot of, a lot of papers that you'll see dealing with revisions and managing bone loss and, you hmm. know, important topics of, metaphyseal fixation and how important that has become in our thought process for revision total knee replacement. So it's great to see papers really showing that, hey, it looks like we really are making some difference in fixation techniques and decreasing our rates of loosening uh, yeah. in revisions. Uh, there's, there's the ever popular topic about uh, unicompartmental knee replacements and revisions of unicompartmental uh, knee replacements. And I thought there was an interesting study that showed actually what people have always talked about, which is potentially the threshold for revising mm. unicompartmental knee replacement is perhaps a little bit lower than if the patient has a, you know, has a total knee replacement. And then uh, kind of along those same lines, I think optimistically some good data showing that that outcomes of a lot of revisions are actually improving over time. Cause I think historically we've, we've always thought of them as being, you know, several notches below a good primary knee replacement with regards to, you know, functional outcomes. So it's, it's good to see some of those papers coming out. And then I think some of the newer themes that are becoming more popular really center around the technology realm. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we continue to see more and more papers being put out about robotics and navigations and, you know, what is their, what is their place in the field of, of arthroplasty, but also starting to look into things like wearable wearables and sensors and, yeah. you know, how that may have an impact on being able to monitor patients even monitor patients uh, remotely yeah and then uh, you know even a couple studies that are starting to touch on you know machine learning and machine learning algorithms that could potentially help us detect loosening of implants things along those lines through some of these artificial intelligent algorithms so you know those are those are i think some of the new the newer technology themes that we're starting to see and that really started to play out in the supplement no absolutely and i think we when we talk next month about the 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 hip supplement, the same is is very much true there, particularly about the machine learning. There's a, one of the prize papers is related to that, and that does seem to be becoming ever more common um, uh, in terms of methodology used. Um, but if we move on to the the prize papers, Brian, the first one I thought we'd uh, touch upon was the one that won the Mark Contry Award and looks at uh, prosthetic joint infection. It was a multi-center perspective randomized trial looking at the role of continued um, oral antibiotics and reducing the rate of failure due to further infection following a two-stage revision for chronic prosthetic infection of the hip or the knee. Uh, and really does add to a, a growing body of evidence there, would you not agree? Oh, I, I definitely agree. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, we're all continuing to look for ways to kind of bend that needle and in helping to improve patients' outcomes when they suffer this drastic complications and the recurrence risk is is really quite significant. So I thought, you know, this was a really interesting paper. It was it was randomized. It was from multiple centers. You know, they did demonstrate about a 50% reduction in their recurrence risk for 
infection between those that received an organism-specific oral antibiotic for three months mm. and those that didn't. And, you know, and as you mentioned, Andrew, I think there's been some other studies out there, uh, maybe not as rigorously done as this one, but I think this really corroborates that idea. I think the, the challenge is, to be fair in this paper, is when they, when they looked at their recurrences, uh, about an overwhelming number, I think almost three-fourths of them were for, they failed for a different organism. Yeah, what yeah. they initially did, which which poses a big challenge. Now mm. we don't know if those are maybe organisms that were there that weren't detected the first time, whether they've been somehow selected out because of the antibiotics that we use. So while it's encouraging, I would say it's still a it's still a, an imperfect solution that we have right now. But I think this is something that if people weren't already doing it, is probably you know we always like to talk about papers that are potentially practice changing. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think before we move on to the other prize papers, Brian, I think it sort of links in well, obviously, that you have a paper in the in the supplement looking at the complications in the treatment of prosthetic joint infection. That's quite interesting just in terms of how they've maybe traditionally considered complications for, yeah. for the infection. Could you just, for our readers, give us a brief overview of that? Sure. So, the, you know, our, our impetus for doing this was the, the tendency with infection is to always look at the end game, and, yeah. and and rightfully so. I mean, that's how we that's how we do things in the research world, and clinically, we want to know how these patients end up. Mm. But we haven't focused a lot necessarily on the journey that they go through from when they're first diagnosed with infection until that until whatever that end game is. And that's kind of what we tried to focus on in this paper is you know is the complication risk that yeah. people go through, the recurrence of infection, those that never make it through the full you know the full treatment. Yeah. And oftentimes then are not accounted for in the denominator in the end result. Mm -hmm. They tend to be kind of left out a little bit. And yeah. this was all this was all data just from our institution here at Ortho Carolina. And actually, you know, for us it was pretty eye-opening and pretty sobering to see, you know, what these patients had to go through and just that journey and at that end game, how few of them um, you know, really I think by depending on how you define success, really had a successful outcome. I know, absolutely. It, I agree. It's it's quite humbling, isn't it? And it, like when you define talk about not just surgical complications, but medical complications in there right. as well. Right. It's it's very interesting. But like you say, so important because the patient goes through all of this, don't they? It's it's they go through all of that. It's not just the X-rays at the end. Yeah. No, I, I totally right. agree. I think it was a very a very interesting paper. Well, thank you. If we if we move on from infection, though, the second prize paper that was from Japan, which uh, right. was a prospective randomized controlled trial again. And they were looking at sort of the use of perioperative essential amino acid supplements uh, to prevent rectus femoris muscle atrophy and facilitate early recovery following uh, TKA. It's quite an interesting study, that Brian, isn't it? It really is. I thought I thought it was quite fascinating, actually, yeah. almost almost because it was so simplistic uh, in, in its approach and, and the outcomes that they looked at. And there's, you know, e even in the supplement, there's there's other studies that talk about. Uh, poor nutrition, obese patients with poor nutrition, hypoalbuminemia, things along those lines. And that's kind of the category that this falls into, that mm. a fair number of our patients, especially in the U.S., are malnourished going into surgery. Mm. And either we don't look for it or we don't know how to treat it. And what I thought was so brilliant about this paper was it's it's a relatively simple solution that they were able to, you mm. know, establish giving patients a supplement, you know, a week before and then two weeks after the surgery and, you know, really show improvements in their functional outcomes, but also just in, you know, what correlates with that is just in their muscle girth and their strength and, yeah. you know, things along those lines. So again, something that 
I think for a lot of us could potentially be implemented, you know, into our practice. It's relatively small, the numbers, yes. you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a short, short-term follow-up, so to speak. But I think it's, like so many of these, it's an impetus for further work that needs to be done on this on this topic to really prove that 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 what we're seeing is is the case. I know I totally agree, and it's sort of a maybe not maybe wrong to call it low hanging fruit, but it's it's such a simple intervention and relatively cheap. But if it makes such a a big difference, it could be it could be quite an important finding, really, couldn't it? It's um, absolutely it make a big difference to the patient. Um, and if we move on to the final paper. Um, the John Insel Award, and this is this is quite interesting. So there's a large single center study from the Rothman uh, that focused on the U.S. health policy ramification of the removal of the TKA from the inpatient only list, and the ne- negative effects this decision has had on bundled care initiatives. Now, for a lot of our well, for, for our listeners over in the UK, Brian, they wouldn't be particularly aware of this, but this has been a big problem for you guys in the states. Yeah, it really has, and I think we we've all worried about the ramifications of this decision when when our government made this decision. To, to allow total knee replacements to be designated as an outpatient mm. um, and what are the potential effects that, that it had and what it basically the effect that it had on us and as you saw very nicely outlined in this paper is it basically filtered off all of the healthy patients that mm. were then able to be quote deemed as an outpatient and it left the 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 for lack of a better description, the sicker patients, the patients with more comorbidities, the more complex patients, to be in the hospital and then, and then be in what we call our bundled care program. Yeah. And so it, it siphoned off the people that would, that would particularly benefit the most from being in that program, moved them to an outpatient category, kept the sicker, more complex patients in that bundled care program. And as you could see in the, from the conclusions of the paper, the pretty dramatic financial effects that it has absolutely you know, on those bundled payments was pretty staggering. I know um, they're really quite stark, aren't they? Those, those yeah, figures. It's, those figures are really quite stark, and I think the the hard part is is uh, you, you never know really know what the intentions of the, of the government are, but no. I don't think it was ever necessarily directly their intention for this to happen. No, it was kind of a it was kind of an unwarranted side effect of it, if you will, and it's it's really. Um, played havoc with a lot of the financial institutions in our and in the hospitals in our country it's it's, it's like you say it like probably wasn't potentially the the main reason but it's certainly a, a significant side effect from it isn't it it's um absolutely it's, it's fascinating profit just bring you back in there just those three prize papers were any comments or, or insights you had regarding that no I, I want to comment particularly about that last one because i think many readers will look at it and think oh dear that's a very north american centric paper for their financial system. But in reality, we've been through exactly this process in the UK with treatment centers. And I suspect over the next decade, every country worldwide will find their tertiary centers penalized by getting the extra complexity as this sort of process takes place. So I I think it's it's really good to see translation uh, worldwide from this kind of work. So people should think laterally from that point of view. And I, I really enjoyed the other two papers as well. I think it's good to see more randomized studies in orthopedics. We really need to raise that bar. And this is a very simple one to win that prize. So I think that needs to encourage people to go and do randomized studies and ask those questions. And the, the, you know, the infection paper, this ability that the knee society has kind of developed to get multiple centers to collaborate is something that we in the UK can learn from. And I suspect others worldwide, because it really does need to be multi-institutional work 
to be yeah. truly generalizable. And I think we need to learn to do that more. So, you know, really very grateful to the Nice Society for this phenomenal output and to Brian, who, you know, has, has reviewed every single paper here and in fact put the program together for the Nice Society meeting. He's done an incredible job. So it's been fantastic working with him. No, absolutely. I'd echo that. And I think it's an excellent supplement, which will be of real interest to our readers. So I think that's a good point for us to finish up. So thank you to you both for joining us and congratulations again on a really, a really great supplement. And I'm sure it will be of real interest to the readership. Thank you very much. Thank you. To our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us and feel free to post or tweet about anything we have discussed here today. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and stay safe.